You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1,933rd edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 15th of June 2023. The editor of this edition is Sheila Franklin, the producer is Roger Morris and your readers are Carol and David Goodrum. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence with the headlines. John fought for Julie to the end. Don't bulldoze our allotments. Parents battle unnecessary change to school uniform. Reg unearths long-lost family. Two brothers have vowed to carry on the fight to bring their sister's killer to justice following the death of their father, who spent 35 years investigating the case. Perry St Edmunds Hotelier... John Ward dedicated his life to seeking justice for his daughter, Julie Ward, whose remains were found in Kenya in 1988. Working on the case to the very end, both Mr Ward and his wife, Jan, passed away aged 89 on Friday, June the 7th and Thursday, May the 25th, respectively. Their sons, Robert and Tim Ward, say they are primed and ready to take over vowing to carry on the investigation into their sister's death in honour of their late parents. Speaking of his father's dedication to seeking justice for Miss Ward, who was 28 when she died, Robert Ward said he was following leads until the end. His eyes started giving up, as did his hearing, but he never stopped, he added. We've been helping him for the last six years and loved working with him. He was a truly extraordinary man, a relentless individual, and both he and my mother will be greatly missed. Now the brothers are taking over their sister's case and have the publication of their late father's second book, a documentary and a drama in the pipeline. Robert Ward added, I always said to Dad, if we can't win the legal challenges, let's at least expose them and tell everyone the truth. The new project will focus on the story of their sister's murder, which begins in September 1988 with Julie travelling through Africa, photographing wildlife. Due to return to England in a week's time, Miss Ward had been travelling the continent for six months and was now heading for the Masai Mara Reserve in Kenya. On September the 6th, she left to collect camping equipment from the nearby Sand River the camp which, was, um, which would be the last time she was seen alive. After being reported missing, her father flew to Kenya in search of his daughter. Remains of her dismembered body were found in the ashes of a fire on September the 13th. With the local police refusing to conduct a murder inquiry, at first blaming a lion attack or lightning strike, Mr Ward began his own investigation. It was only in October the following year, after an inquest in Nairobi, that Kenyan authorities accepted the woman had been murdered. In June 1992, two junior Masai Mara rangers 
were tried and acquitted of Miss Ward's murder, with another trial taking place seven years later. In a major step forward for the family, an inquest held at Suffolk Coroner's Court in May 2004 ruled that Miss Ward had been unlawfully killed. The case took a turn in April 2019, when the prime suspect in Mr Ward's investigation died. Jonathan Moy, son of former Kenyan President Daniel Arap Moy. However, after passing, aged 89, neither Mr Ward nor his wife lived to see their daughter's killer brought to justice. Robert Ward added, The world saw him as a private investigator, but to us he was a loving father. Furious residents have hit out at plans to bulldoze their village's 120-year-old allotments, alleging that the council has accepted gifted land to sweeten the deal. Thurston residents have have lodged 37 objections against an application which will see the village's allotments bulldozed in favour of building eight homes. The plans for land west of Barrels Road which were revealed in late May, replaced an application for 58 houses on the same site. In return for ownership of two pieces of land in the heart of the village, Thurston Parish Council is supporting the proposals, in addition to five houses in Churchview at Manor Farm. Now Thurston residents have come out against the plans, with 37 objections lodged in just under two weeks alleging that the council only accepted the gifted land to sweeten the deal. One disgruntled resident said, At some point the council have to take a stand for what is right, not what they think they can get out of a deal. The allotments should be extended as the village is growing, not swallowed up by houses. Another said that they grew all their own vegetables on the land, and the suggested replacement land was poor and difficult to cultivate. There's nothing sustainable about these carbuncles around our village, they added. Give us all a break. Concerns have also been raised surrounding the protection of the landscape and habitat, as deer, hedgehogs, slow worms, grass snakes, newts, bats, owls, buzzards, kites and butterflies are known to live on the land. One resident highlighted the nation's increasing awareness of the need for habitat protection, but added, sadly, as we have seen across Suffolk in recent years, this seems to count for nothing when up against the relentless development of housing sites. Thurston Parish Council was contacted for comment. Parents of students at a secondary school have said changes to its uniform are a totally unnecessary step backwards and will hit families struggling with, struggling with the cost of living. Bury St Edmunds County High School, formerly County Upper School, has told parents that, from September, their children will have to wear a blazer with a logo, tie, white shirt stroke blouse and grey skirts or trousers. Pupils currently wear a polo shirt and navy pullover jumper with logos. In an online poll launched by a concerned parent, a 95% majority of those who responded said that current Year 9 and 10 students should not be included in the change. 
Head teacher Sally Kennedy said the school had been consulting on the issue for seven months. They would provide one free blazer and one tie per pupil, while further blazers could be bought from £29.50 and ties at £3.75. But parents' concerns about the cost remain. Sarah Dean from Bury St Edmunds, who has five sons, including twins, currently in Year 9, said she was not sure how she would pay for the new uniform as she had needed help from a food bank charity to buy the current uniform. Gatehouse helped me to buy uniform for this year already and now I've got to replace all of it for two people, she said. I don't think I'll be able to afford the uniform. I'll probably be sending my children to school in the uniform I've already bought. I'd like to say I'd drop out and change school, but we've already tried that and King Edward VI school is full. Schools are so old-fashioned now, this just pushes them further backwards. It's not a very progressive move. A grandfather has been reunited with the family he had been searching for for more than 40 years. 63-year-old Reg Barker from Mildenhall enjoyed what he described as an emotional and amazing weekend with the siblings he had found. The teaching assistant, who works at the town's Great Heath Primary School, was born in a Bristol hospital back in 1959. But his mother had kept her pregnancy secret, and after spending time in acute care in a very serious condition, Reg was taken to a baby and toddler's home called Victoria Gibbs, near Clifton Downs. In May 1963, Reg was adopted and was brought up on a council estate in a tough area of Brixton in South London. Before, in 1971, the family moved to Mildenhall, which had been designated as an overspill town by the Greater London Council. But it wasn't until he was 18 he found out he had been adopted. It was then the desire to find out about my mum, dad and family kicked in, but trying to find out about my past took many failed attempts, said Reg. After watching a television programme about family history, he contacted the Salvation Army, and with the help of the charity, he was able to trace his adoption papers and contact his birth mother. Sadly, although they wrote to each other, Reg and his mother never met. The closest he got was when he stood next to her coffin at her funeral. But he said he felt he got to know his mother through her letters. You could say we were reunited, he said. Reg's search for his birth father continued, and through his adoption papers he found out his father's age and that he had three sons. As this went on, a name kept coming up, a famous name from the big band music era, said Reg. With the help of a DNA kit bought for him by his daughter, Reg discovered he had three half-brothers and a half-sister, but also that his father had died. Sixty years after he first left Bristol with his adoptive family, Reg took his own daughters, son-in-law and three grandchildren with him as he was reunited with his long-lost family. One of his brothers flew in from South Africa, especially for the occasion, meaning the siblings, who have all the same father, were all together for the first time. 
I had a very emotional, overwhelm, overwhelming feeling of happiness, but also regret for all the years missed, said Reg, the youngest of the family. And he has already arranged to go back to Bristol in August to spend more time with them and stays in daily contact. And he has started to tell some of his pupils his story. Don't give up on your dreams. They will come true, he said. We now move on to our general news section. The parish councillor has spoken of the grey area his authority is in after releasing, releasing a report on drivers speeding through Horringer. Councillor Tom Lewis compiled data from the speed indicator device, SID, on the A143 from October 2022 to March this year. The results showed around 30 to 40% of traffic broke the 30 miles per hour limit, which equates to around 7,000 vehicles a week in both directions. Councillor Lewis said the headline statistics are pretty dispiriting. Even though the site of the SID has slowed traffic down, there are still those that just do not care. The fastest speeds recorded through the village were 86 and 88 miles per hour. The SID is placed next to the village's footpath, the only pedestrian route from one end of Horringer to the other, which Councillor Lewis also said needed addressing. He said the speeding is discouraging people from using the path and alternative transport such as cycling around the village. Residents are risking themselves on that A-road route and we feel something needs to be addressed on this too to keep them safe. Asked about what the council has done to get help, Councillor Lewis said the county's highways authority and the police had been con contacted. But he added both issues are interconnected. But we feel we are in a grey area, falling between the cracks of highways and the police, with both asking us to contact the other for assistance. All we want is engagement, support and acknowledgement from the powers that be as effective enforcement to try and help with the speeding and the resident safety issues. But at the moment this has become very frustrating. A Suffolk Constabulary spokesman said the police were aware of the speeding issue in Horringer and the impact and concern it was having on residents. A motorist had a miraculous escape after his car was run over and destroyed by an out-of-control tractor driven by a drug-taking teenager. Dramatic video footage captured the moment Tyler Salby's huge case IH vehicle veered across the two-lane road outside RAF Mildenhall and into the path of a Honda. Graham Tyndall, prosecuting, told Carlisle Magistrates Court on Monday that William Davis was driving a Honda along the A1101 in Beck Row, alongside RAF Mildenhall, shortly after midday on September the 24th last year. As Mr Davis did so, Sowerby, who's 19, drove towards him. The defendant was driving in the opposite direction, in a tractor which was towing a trailer which was loaded with grain. He was swerving along the road. Mr Davis thinks he, Sowerby, will get back onto his side, but he doesn't. He drives his tractor on top of the car and the tractor turns over. Emergency services were called to the scene. CCTV appears to show Sowerby 
swiftly alighting from the tractor. Images showing extensive damage to the Honda were shown in court. Analysis gave a positive reading for amphetamine in Selby's system and in court he admitted careless driving and driving while unfit through drugs. Sowerby of Lazenby, near Penrith, had previously admitted a separate drug-driving offence. This was committed on February the 10th, as he was stopped by police while driving a Vauxhall Corsa. A blood test showed he was over the legal limit for cocaine. The court heard he had no previous convictions to his name. Duncan Campbell, defending, said Sowerby had lost control of the tractor. It was not as serious as it could have been, said Mr Campbell. A detailed probation service pre-sentence report gave details of Sowerby's difficult background. He was sentenced to eight-week prison sentence, suspended for 12 months. He must also complete a rehabilitation requirement by working with the probation service for up to 10 days, 60 hours of unpaid work and a three-year driving ban. Complaints have arisen surrounding a Suffolk town's stolen trolley problem, with residents saying the abandoned shopping truck carts have been around so long that they've become part of the scenery. Nigel Lewis, 65, has lived in Haverhill for 34 years and uses the TrolleyWise app report the scattered shopping carts on a regular basis. They're everywhere because the Tesco ones, don't, Tesco ones don't have a coin lock, he said. We joke by saying, don't buy a 30p bag, you might as well just take a Tesco trolley home. Having personally reported 18 abandoned shopping carts this year, Mr Lewis believes 10 to 12 are recovered from around Haverhill every week. They're picked up and crushed with each trolley costing about £150, he added. But I'm more concerned about the town I live in. Some of them have been around for so long that they've become part of the scenery. Mr Lewis also noted that many of the stolen shopping carts have been dumped in the River Stour. Surely it would make sense to install coin locks, or even the magnetic locks, to stop you from taking them out of the car park, he said. The strange thing is that Tesco Express chains have the coin have the coin locks, so why doesn't Tesco's? A Tesco spokesman said, We encourage all customers to return their trolleys once they have finished their shop, both for others to use and because we don't want them to cause any harm to the local environment. We use a specialist company called Trolleywise to retrieve our trolleys when they have been taken, and we'd ask anyone who sees an abandoned Tesco trolley to use the TrolleyWise app to report this or let their local store know so we can get it back as soon as possible. Haverhill Town Council was approached for comment. Four students at County High School, Bury St Edmunds, the County Upper, have won the NSEA Inter-County Championship Final in the One Metre Class at Hickstead 2023. <coughs> Francesca Claire Wilson, 16, Jack Callan, 16, Maya Archer, 15, and Henry Callan, 14, made up County High's National Schools Equestrian... I'm sorry, made up County High School's NSEA National Schools Equestrian Association team and successfully qualified as the Suffolk team earlier this year 
in some very competitive competitions. The team travelled down to Hickstead, which is in West Sussex, to compete in the finals on May the 28th. With all four riders producing phenomenal show jumping rounds, the team finished in first place, a substantial nine seconds ahead of second place, to become 2023's national 1M champions. The students were thrilled with the result and over the moon with their horses. They are looking forward to further team competitions this year and hope to build on this success. A 30-year-old Suffolk man accused of causing the death of a cyclist by dangerous driving in Bury St Edmunds used his phone to send a WhatsApp message shortly before the fatal collision, it has been alleged. Alexander Martin was driving his Nissan Qashqai home from work along the Newmarket Road in the town towards the A14 when he hit the back of a cycle ridden by 65-year-old Stephen Lawrence from Risby, Ipswich Crown Court heard. Mr Lawrence, who was wearing a a high-vis jacket and a red baseball cap, was catapulted into the air and hit the windscreen of the Kashkwai before landing in the road behind the vehicle, said William Carter, prosecuting. He suffered catastrophic injuries and was declared dead at the scene. Martin of Tullia Walk, Newmarket, has denied causing death by dangerous driving on April 12, 2021, and an alternative, less serious charge of causing Mr Lawrence's death by careless driving. Mr Carter told the court that shortly before the fatal collision at around 6pm, Martin had stopped at a shell garage to buy a drink and could be seen looking down something as he left. An examination of his phone showed he had sent a WhatsApp message 34 seconds before making a 999 call following the collision. You may be driven to the conclusion that he was in fact using his phone during the journey between the garage and the crash, said Mr Carter. He said that a windscreen wiper on the driver's side of the crash cry was broken and the windscreen had been extremely dirty. After his arrest, Martin claimed that Mr Lawrence had hit the kerb or for some reason had swerved in front of him immediately before the collision. However, Mr Carter said that expert evidence from an accident investigator didn't support that. We say that for whatever reason he didn't see him, said Carter. The trial continues. A popular Suffolk beach has been named as one of the most beautiful seaside villages in the UK. Wolverswick has been ranked among the top 19 most beautiful seaside village by travel experts at national newspaper The Telegraph. Experts described the village as the magical light of the Suffolk coast, highlighting its stunning sand dunes and beach. They added, the wooden bridge leading from the picturesque village of Wolverswick to the beach, is always crammed with children, clutching crabbing lines and plastic buckets. Last month, the Telegraph also named Wolverswick as one of the best beaches in the country. In January, it was also deemed one of the most desirable places to live in the UK. A teacher at a hospital school has thanked players on a Bury St Edmunds netball team for donating their books. Nicola Edwards, who teaches at the West Suffolk Hospital School, needed book donations for the Rainbow Ward. Players of Jets Netball Club rallied together and collected books, including exam textbooks, to be given to the ward 
so that children can enjoy reading during their time in hospital. Over a hundred books were donated. Nicola of Risby said a huge thank you to all the girls at Jets Netball Club. I know that their choices of books will make a difference to the children. They've been really generous. When the children come into hospital, they can be really anxious about the procedures they have to go through, and so we use a lot of our activities as a distraction. It fills those gaps when they're waiting to be discharged or when they're waiting for a procedure to happen. The hospital school run by the Ridewall Trust work to ensure that pupils' education is disrupted as little as possible. The green light has been given for a luxury wellbeing retreat complete with therapy pets and camping domes near Berries and Edmonds. Submitted at the end of last year, the application sought permission for a change of use to land on Porter's Farm in Queensland, Chedborough, to create animal enclosures, camping domes and a healing garden. Landowners John and Laura Cardi have prior experience as an intensive care consultant and nurse, respectively. They stated their intentions for the Wellbeing Centre within their planning permission, saying, Having spent many years on the front line of the NHS, mending very broken bodies, we now aim to heal fractured minds at the Suffolk Sanctuary, a space with mental health and well-being central to its concept. Now, West Suffolk Council has granted permission. Work can start on converting the building into a well-being centre with a a variety of facilities for consultation, supportive care, workshops and overnight accommodation. The couple have been providing mental health support at Porter's Farm informally for the past four years and they say demand for the services proposed is extremely high. A 49-year-old man has been taken to hospital after the air ambulance was called to a crash near the A14. Officers were called to the collision on the A1120 just off the A14 in Stowmarket at about 4.30pm on Wednesday. The slip road from Junction 50 of the A14 had to be closed while emergency services attended to the incident. A man who was suffering from back pain had to be freed from the vehicle. The East of England Ambulance Service said an ambulance, ambulance officer and the Essex and Hearts Air Ambulance were sent to the scene. An adult man was transported by road to the West Suffolk Hospital for treatment. Suffolk Police has been approached for comment. A 14-year-old from Berry St Edmunds has become one of the youngest pilots in the UK after going solo for the first time at Rattleston Gliding Club. Sienna Hunter of Bunbury Road took to the air on May the 27th, breaking the club's previous record, which was held by a 15-year-old boy. The King Edward VI student took 17 hours and 23 minutes worth of lessons before taking full control of her solo flight on her 101st launch. Marie, Sienna's mum, said, What makes this even more remarkable is that she is a girl and the sport has desperately tried to bring women into this predominantly male sport. Sienna is super proud to beat the club's record and we are so happy for her after all the dedication and work has been put in. 
the teenager decided to take to the skies herself after watching a friend do a flying experience. Sienna is now the 12th glider pilot in family, which includes her granddad Terry, who has flown since he was 19 and had an RAF career, her nan, Mari, who also flew at 14 in Holland, and one of her great-uncles, who is a twice-standard class world champion. On her daughter joining the family legacy, Mari said, Her granddad is just so proud of her, and we are more on cloud nine than she is. She has managed to accomplish this three days within a year of her starting to fly, which is just amazing. The age for solo gliding in the UK was 16, until it was lowered to 14 in 2012. Now the pair hope Sienna's achievement can put a positive message out there to girls and women taking up the sport. Mari said, Sienna has a massive passion for flying and I am sure she is not the only girl or woman wanting to try gliding. So, we hope if someone reads this who has wanted to get up there but has felt they can't, it will now make them go to a club like Rattleston and give it a go. Asked what it is like when she glides, the Air Cadet of 301 Squadron Air Training Corps said it makes her feel happy and free and flying detaches her from any stress as anything that might be on on in her mind just floats away. Mari said Sienna wants to carry on her passion for flying and aerobatics with a dream of eventually becoming a fully trained pilot. The loss of a town's sole remaining bank will be a big inconvenience for residents, the owner of the building has said. It was recently announced that the Barclays branch in the High Street in Mildenhall is to close its doors permanently on Wednesday, June the 14th. John Kendall, 74, of Tuddenham, has owned the building in the town for over seven years and said he was sad to see the bank leave the area. Well, it's a real shame, to be honest. It's a shame that a lot of the small banks are closing and it's not just this one, said Mr Kendall. I didn't want to see it go and it's honestly a big inconvenience for a lot of people. A lot of people who I have met in the bank have expressed disappointment that it has closed, which I can definitely understand. It was announced in March that the branch would close shortly after the decision was made to close another Barclays branch in Newmarket. In June 2021, it was also confirmed that the Lloyds Bank in Mildenhall High Street would be closing. Mr Kendall, who regularly uses the Mildenhall branch, will now travel to Bury St Edmunds to use the Barclays Bank there instead. He said, Barclays and I get on well together and we've had a good relationship. Since it's been public knowledge that the bank is going to close, I've had a lot of interest from outside people who want to know what I'm going to do with it. So it's not all bad news as it is a nice building and it will be used for something else, I'm sure. A statement from the National Federation of Sub-Postmasters said the closure would doubtless be disappointing for residents, but they wanted to make people aware of alternatives to banking at this branch via the nearby post offices. It said alternative banking provision is available to local residents at post office branches nearby. Each of these branches offers banking services, including deposits, free cash withdrawals and balance checks, face-to-face access to government services, bill payment, foreign currency, 
travel insurance and postal services. The nearest post offices is the Bar- to the Barclays branch on the High Street are Milden Hall Post Office in King Street and St John's Close Post Office in St John's Close and also at 42 High Street in Lakenheath. Bury St Edmunds Church celebrated the cultural diversity of its worshippers with an international mass which saw around 300 people attend. St Edmunds Church in Westgate Street invited worshippers from different nationalities to lead prayers and share food on May the 28th. The day was a special one for Catholics across the world. It was the Feast of the Pentecost, which commemorates the descent of the Holy Spirit onto the followers of Jesus. Father David Bagstaff, the church's parish priest, said, It was a celebration of the great feast of the Pentecost. Secondly, it celebrated the diversity of our parish community. No matter where they come from in the world, everyone can be part of our parish. We are very lucky to have people from so many different countries. Tributes have been paid to an immensely kind and determined woman who completed the UK's tallest bungee jump four weeks before she died. Valerie Talbot from Bury St Edmunds was known for her determination to help others. She was just a lovely, lovely woman and everybody loved her to pieces, said Rowley Talbot, Valerie's husband of 36 years. We met at a local haulage company where I worked as a driver and she worked in the invoicing team. Instantly we connected and never looked back. Mrs Talbot made the news earlier this year when she took on a 300-foot bungee jump on April the 8th despite having Parkinson's disease and rheumatoid arthritis. She had vowed to take on the bungee jump in memory of her close friend John Hunt who died on Christmas Day 2022. She had hoped to raise £1,000 for St Elizabeth's Hospice which had supported John towards the end of his life. In fact, Mrs Talbot tripled this target and was delighted to present the hospice with a cheque for £3,000. She was so colourful, always with a smile on her face and also very brave. Whatever she said she was going to do, she made sure she did it, such as the bungee jump for the hospice in John's memory, said Rowley. I am so proud of her fantastic fundraising for the hospice and at Valerie's funeral we have asked for no flowers but instead for people to make donations to St Elizabeth Hospice. Valerie Tolbert died on May the 5th, aged 66. Kelly Necru is the hospice's community fundraising assistant. She said, On behalf of the whole St, Ed- St Elizabeth Hospice team, I would like to send all our love and wishes to Rowley and his family. Having met and spoken with Valerie many times during her hospice fundraising journey, I know what a special person she was. She leaves a fantastic legacy, full of kindness, and one which has made such a difference to her local community. A Pakenham father of two has returned home from Turkey after undergoing major surgery to donate part of his liver to save a friend's life. Ben Britton, who is 36, is recovering following his life-saving donation for friend and former colleague Susan, who was struck down with autoimmune hepatitis last month. Ben and Susan became friends 
while working together at an international aid organization and kept in touch after Susan moved to Istanbul several years ago. Realizing she was unwell, Susan went into hospital in Istanbul for tests last month, but her health deteriorated and she fell unconscious. When Ben was alerted to Susan's condition and her urgent need for a liver transplant, he volunteered. He said, The hospital said her condition was so severe, her liver was failing and she needed an organ replacement. I knew I had to step forward. Ben hoped he might be a match, as his blood group matched Susan's, and he is physically fit thanks to being a keen cricketer. He flew to Istanbul on May the 24th for a hectic two days of getting paperwork translated and approved ahead of surgery on May the 26th. We spent two days running around Istanbul. It was a bit a bit manic, but Susan has got lots of friends in Istanbul and they were so helpful they made it all happen. Without them it wouldn't have been possible, said Ben. Once at the hospital, doctors told Ben that Susan's liver was failing and she had just hours to live without the transplant. Ben's surgery took three hours. They took 70% of my liver, which is expected to grow back after a cut after a couple of months, before Susan underwent a five-hour operation. He was in hospital for a week and has now returned home to Pakenham. Susan is still in hospital, but he's doing really well and expected to make a full recovery. Having been unconscious, when Susan woke up, she was surprised to find out someone had donated a liver for her, said Ben. Afterwards, we were able to meet in person and speak, and that was very emotional. Ben said his recovery was going to plan, and he was easing back into normal life. But he had found it hard not to be able to give his seven-year-old daughter Olive a big hug when he returned home. However, he said Olive and his son Percy, 14, understood what had been going on. They both said, how I've been brave, said Ben. What a wonderful... And now we have some letters. Many of the letters this week pick up on previously covered articles. Our first letter is from Barry Peters, editor of the Berry Free Press. I'm a sucker for those long-lost family stories on telly. I always well up with tears, and I'm sure a lot of you do too. So this week's story about Reg Barker really pulled at my emotions. Reg has been reunited with his siblings after 45 years. Powerful stuff indeed. Reg is a grandfather from Mildenhall who was born in the late 50s in Bristol. He's working now as a teaching assistant and was adopted back in the early 1960s. He never knew he was adopted until he was 18 and then spent years tracking his mum and they were reunited but only at her funeral. The same fate befell Reg in his hunt for his dad, as he died too, before they could meet. But Reg did find out through DNA that he had siblings, and it's that meeting with his three half-brothers and a half-sister which really got me to thinking about science. I'm always left speechless about cold-case crimes 
which are solved incredibly with the help of DNA. Used correctly, science can track down criminals who have long thought they have got away with murder, literally, and prove the innocence of others wrongfully jailed. But for Reg, the simple use of science meant he, meant he could enjoy a happy reunion with long-lost family and even see his musician father on family DVDs. Science has its problems, but what a fantastic result it produced for 63-year-old Reg. And Harry Hayfield of Cardiganshire, which is in Wales, writes, As a frequent visitor to the charming town of Bury St Edmunds over the last few years, I was astonished to discover its historical connection to one of the most significant documents in the history of democracy, the Magna Carta. Next year marks the momentous 810th anniversary of the drafting of the Magna Carta at the Abbey in Bury St Edmunds. This event laid the foundations for principles that continue to shape modern societies worldwide. Given its historical importance, I believe this anniversary presents a unique opportunity for our community and its elected representatives to come together and celebrate our rich heritage. With the upcoming election for the Bury St Edmunds constituency scheduled for the anniversary year, I propose that all candidates meet at the Abbey together during the campaign and, like the barons of old, publicly swear their dedication to promoting and upholding the principles of the Magna Carta if elected to Parliament. By gathering at the birthplace of this historic document, candidates will symbolise their commitment to safeguard the rights and liberties of your community. This act will not only remind us of all the importance of democratic values, but also demonstrate a shared dedication to the vel welfare of Bury St Edmunds and its residents. I also encourage the Bury Free Press to play an active role in organising this event. Your publication holds significant influence within the community and your involvement will ensure its prominence and successful realisation. Let us seize the upcoming anniversary of the Magna Carta to unite the community and inspire the candidates to uphold its values. Together, we can strengthen our democracy and preserve Berries and Edmunds' legacy as a birthplace of freedom and justice. Thank you for your attention. I eagerly anticipate the realisation of this proposal and the positive impact it will have on our community. Now, Dee Powell of Ipswich thinks that the BBC is becoming ever more irrelevant. When are the bosses at the BBC going to wake up and realise that they are making the BBC less and less relevant to us all? We would always watch Look East when it covered East Anglia, but now it covers such a very large area it's becoming irrelevant. The same will be true of our wonderful Radio Suffolk. In the good old Mark Murphy and previous presenters' days, I always had the radio in the car, but no longer listen to that programme now. Please can someone talk them into reversing this decision? And uh, our next letter is a thank you from Andrea Gillis and Lou Manning. Lou Manning and Andrea Gillis have completed a sponsored walk 
for Iceland's charitable foundation to build the first rare dementia centre. The pair walked from Mildenhall to Bury St Edmunds along the Lark Valley Path on Saturday, May 27th, when it was a very hot day. Thank you to everyone who we met on the journey, who offered us cold drinks and also Dettol for all the stinging nettle rashes we had. Also, a very big thank you to everyone who sponsored us so generously. The total raised was £2,739. We now have two letters concerning former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. The first is from John Davis of Bury St Edmunds. So Boris Johnson has resigned, but says, I will be back. With our first past the post voting system, this is possible, because we have only one person in each party to vote for, and he is chosen to stand in a safe Conservative seat. It is a foregone conclusion that he will be re-elected. With PPPR, Party Percentage Proportional Representation, four constituencies are combined into one voting area so that the voters could have a choice of four party people, two male, two female, to represent them. This means that the winning candidates will not just depend on the handful of people in the selection committee, but over one one quarter of a million voters. Most constituencies have over 70,000 voters. In the dictionary, democracy is in which the people have a choice. With FPTP voting, it is voting for my party. You've got to vote for me, so for some the only choice would be Boris. With PPPR voters could still vote for Boris, but also have a choice of three other people. Which system is the fairest and which system do you prefer? And the second letter is from Colin Rossini of Dovercourt. Bon voyage, Boris, and take Brexit with you. When Nigel Farage admits leaving the EU has failed the people, what further proof do we need to get rid of to rid ourselves of the Boris gang who shop at Trusco because every wreckage helps? And Councillor Philippa Winter, who is Mayor of Newmarket, writes, It's time to say thanks for work on Clock Tower. It gave me great pleasure to unveil the plaque in memory of the late Queen following the completion of restoration work at Newmarket Clock Tower. I want to give special thanks to Philip Orchard of the Whitworth Partnership and to F.A. Valiant, specialist builders of Barrow, and in particular Les Hopton and Tom Austin, who have completed the project extremely efficiently. I'm sure the residents of Newmarket will agree it has been a job carried out to the highest standard. I would also like to thank Philip Green, who expertly winds and maintains the tower's clock. It takes 115 turns to fully wind each week. David Jowers of Ipswich titles his letter, Now Pothole Repairs Are Being Cut. Deaths by a thousand cuts. Yes, the British are used to cuts. An apt quote from a carry-on film. Can you imagine a surgeon or a dentist leaving a procedure half-stitched up or filled? The roundabout at the Toyota garage prior to attempting to route up the A14 has been very bad for some time and rapidly getting more broken up and potholed 
so that you need to weave around to gain safe ground. Yesterday I found that a repair of sorts had been attempted. Not a complete repair. It's beyond belief that only the deep craters for potholes had been filled, leaving the rest to continually get worse. Don't get me started on my exorbitant road tax when heavy electric damaging cars pay zero for road upkeep. From uncut verges, poor roads, endless road closures and lack of pride in our town, I don't know what is next to be cut or downgraded. It's all beyond me. And finally, to complete our letters section, we end not with a letter, but a poem. This is written from Graham Day of Stowmarket, who's a frequent contributor to the letters section. <clears throat> the heading is, No Mo May is Over, So No More Excuses. No Mo May has come and gone away. What are we left with at the end of the day? Tidy roundabouts? Well-cut verges, enough to stop the regular surges of anger from the man in the street who cannot understand why things are not now neat. Oh no, there's no sound of a mower stirring, far more likely to hear the whirring of wings. It is, I suppose, just one of those things. Those responsible have no shame. What really is their end game? Farm out to contractors to save money, using the excuse of bees making honey. Come off it. Start getting a grip. Don't turn town and country into a tip. Your inaction will be remembered far and wide. At least most of us have pride in our wonderful county. Where is yours? And now we have a feature, and this first feature is an opinion piece from Mark Murphy and follows on from Graham Day's poem. It's entitled... Pick up the grass cuttings. No mow may has now become piles of hay. My column last week on no mow may prompted lots of debate and discussion. If you read the letters column this week in the EADT, you'll know some were in favour of it and some were against. That's exactly what I want this column to be, something that gets us talking. We may not agree all the time, but good old-fashioned debate is a healthy thing. If you agree or disagree with me, then why not write to the letters page and have your say? I think it's fair to say that we all want what's best for Mother Nature, but it seems some of us have differing opinions on how best to do that. Since I wrote last week's column, the mowers have been out in Ipswich cutting the grass verges. None of the cut grass has been picked up, so we now have what looks like a mown field for haymaking along our roadsides. Mark Schofield, Plant Life's Road Verges manager, says, The removal of cuttings is crucial to encouraging plant diversity. When cuttings are left to rot down on lawns, this enriches the soil and creates an environment where more competitive grasses and species like nettles, hogweeds and thistles take over, smothering the rest of our wild flora. So, if we're going to do it, let's do it properly and pick up the cuttings. One place I'm thrilled to have been cut, uh, seen cut is the Seven Hills Interchange Roundabout junctions near Levington. The junctions were becoming quite dangerous with poor visibility and so it was good to see a man on a mower the other evening. If we're going to create a habitat in our towns for wildlife, 
Let's really do it, not just for the month of May, and safely. You imagine if you're an insect making your home in May, only for a month later to have it destroyed by a lawnmower. We should create year-round places for wildlife, well-managed, and tell people about them. I'm sure some of the negative comments wouldn't have happened if people were more informed about the reasons for not cutting the grass. Lots of cynical folks suspect it's a little more than a money-saving thing, so it would be lovely of our councils to come out and tell us more about their reasoning. We shouldn't just leave it to our councils to help our wildlife. There's so much we can do ourselves. Creating a wildlife habitat in our garden is something we can all do. We've got an area which we've sprinkled wildflower seeds into and it's starting to come up nicely. When choosing plants, we think about the flowers and what would be beneficial to the pollinators and butterflies. We try and have things that flower at different times, so they've always got something to eat. The big issue for wildlife now is the lack of rainfall. We've had very little rain and the ground is rock hard. We've got my late mum's concrete bird bath, which is probably nearly 50 years old, and it's still doing the business. I think every garden should have one. We're also putting out dishes of water every night for the hedgehogs and any other creature that might wander into the garden. I still think, though, that there is a place for manicured grass and flowers. I love walking through the seafront gardens in Felixstowe, which look beautiful at this time of the year. With diversity of planting, they also are beneficial to wildlife. Anyway, with all this dry weather continuing, I think we'll have no need to mow until autumn. And our second feature is an opinion piece by Martin Newell, who reflects on this morning gate with Wally Hillaby and Philip Showpony. I felt that it was about time to join the debate on what must be the weightiest topic of our age, even with new developments brewing in Ukraine, even while warnings of irreversible climate change last week continue to threaten the horse-raising fraternity. Sorry, that should have read our environment. Something far bigger has emerged. On Monday, therefore, I hunched over my laptop, waiting for Wally Hillaby to issue her statement on the national tragedy which many are already calling this morning gate. I needed to, I needed to know this stuff. I stopped paying my TV licence fee about two years ago. I just wasn't watching enough telly to justify it. Instead, I have a collection of classic films which, when I finally get a chance to sit down, I enjoy. I do sometimes see snippets of TV programmes on YouTube and if there's something which I really can't do without, like a box set of Hee Haw, I'll go online and buy it. Television is one thing. Daytime TV is a different kettle of coconuts. Since I've never watched ITV's This Morning, I found the current mass hysteria about Philip Schofield's fall from grace an odd construct. Does hosting such a, such a show confer grace on its presenters? Since I still read newspapers, I was vaguely aware that a while ago the presenter had come out as gay. So far, so predictable. If we quibbled with everyone who was gay in arts and media, we'd be left with Jim Davidson, Jeremy Clarkson and me. So it wasn't homophobia. As a revelation, it wasn't even that apocalyptic. 
Then, I learned that an even bigger story had broken. I'm sure that I don't need to give you the catch-up. From our lively letters page, I can tell that our readers are totally clued up about everything. But I'm usually the last man in Britain to know this sort of stuff. I wasn't even sure who Philip Snowfield or Hilly Wallaby were. I nearly had to ask this new AI app what it was all about. I learned from newspaper pictures, however, that they were daytime TV presenters with an on-screen chemistry. Very cute they were, too. ITV couldn't have done better if they'd have paired up a silver meerkat and a blonde bush baby to sit on the sofa of destiny interviewing the hapless guests each morning. Having finally retrieved my monocle at first glance, I thought that's what ITV had actually done. Next, I learned that gowns were being rendered, teeth were being gnashed, and lives were in ruins. Philip Showpony had lost literally everything, we were told. There was concern for his well-being. He was in a very bad place, it was said. Very bad place, eh? Been there, done that, read the book, seen the miniseries, still using the T-shirt as a duster. As for Willow Hollaby, his former companion on the sofa, she felt completely let down because Philip hadn't told the truth. What about the anonymous young man in this story? Sorry, but we had to ask. By this time our nation was all cried out, not a dry shoulder in the house. Me? Much more of this stuff, and I'd have gone into hyperglycemia. Philip had indeed been in very bad place. It's called television. I discovered that in his younger days he'd written to TV companies asking to be given a, a shot at the job. He was granted his wish. This only goes to show that there, are, that there really are no victims, only volunteers. I don't appear on TV much nowadays. Once upon a time I did a bit. During the early noughties I presented a few news documentaries. In the nineties, as a performance poet, I was on art shows. I guested on a gardening series. I was once on a news quiz. In fact, when the director of a recent documentary about me scrabbled around, we were both surprised at the amount that turned up in the vaults. Actually, I didn't like working in television. Well, it doesn't suit absolutely everybody. The chilly breeze of ambition blowing around its corridors isn't very nice. Long after programmes were transmitted, I noticed that people down the pub were being odd with me. Didn't you used to be someone else? On balance, I preferred radio. There are only two types of people in radio. Those who see it as a stepping stone to TV and those who truly love radio. I prefer the second type. But if you go on telly a lot, it's easier to get your book deal or open a restaurant or become the face of a designer clothing firm. In television, if it ever goes wrong, your whole life goes to smash. And in the midst of it, everyone will recognise you. That's when you find the clown mask still firmly welded to your face. No amount of tears will loosen it. I hope to rebuild my life. My wife is standing by me. People have been so kind, etc. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmund's Free News Talk. 
you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Sheila, Roger, Carol and David, it's goodbye. Goodbye. been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.